This audio file comes from the Libri Ideas Library at www.libri-ideas-library.org. The library contains over 1,000 lectures and discussions which explore questions about the reality and relevance of Christianity. We ask you to respect the copyright for this audio file which belongs to Libri Fellowship. The file is for personal use to share with friends, family and colleagues, but please do not publish the material in any format or post it on a website without seeking permission from Libri Fellowship. Please note that views expressed in the lecture and discussion time do not necessarily represent the views of Libri Fellowship. I just forgot to hit record here. So this is the, um, the first, first lecture in a series, if all goes well. Um, it's basically, I've been joking with people um, that it's basically a, one big glorified slideshow, um, this lecture. And it's about birds, and particularly about birds as creatures that can fly. And what does that, what does that take? What does that mean? Um, a word about my title, Birds of the Kingdom. Uh, birds are obviously part of the animal kingdom, but I would say they're also part of the kingdom of God in the sense that they are members of God's good creation. And like all non-human members of God's good creation, they praise Him by simply being themselves. Not by articulating anything in words, but by being themselves is how they honor God. Uh, God called them, along with a bunch of other stuff, good uh, on day five of creation. Uh, as told in Genesis 1. I believe He's also made all the creatures in the ocean too. Uh, but he, he looks at what he's, he's made on day five and says, it is good. Uh, and so I believe the new heavens and the new earth will include them, along with everything else that's been renewed. Uh, so birds, birds, I believe, will flourish in the new earth. That's why I call them birds of the kingdom. Uh, <clears throat> I want to jump right in. Um, we'll, be, we'll be thinking a little bit about um, some biblical ideas at the beginning and then we'll sort of transition to just basically talking about birds for the rest of the talk. Um, what is the first thing that is noteworthy about a bird? If you were a Martian, I often think about this, if you were a Martian and you arrived on Earth for the first time and you saw a bird living its life, what would stick out to you? I wager... Uh, you would be struck by this thing that they do in the air. Most birds uh, can get into the air, stay in the air, and move through the air really, really fast, which is an amazing phenomenon, if you, if you think about it. They do not seem to be bound by gravity in the way that the other organisms are on Earth. Um, the rest of us Earthlings are very heavy and plodding and hopelessly Earth-bound in comparison, or water-bound, depending on what we are. <coughs> Of course, this is an obvious thing. This is not a, a uh, revolutionary thing to say. It's something we take for granted that birds can fly. It's hard to be astonished by something because, like this because it's, it's a commonplace. None of you can probably remember when you first saw a bird fly. It's such a basic, ordinary thing for a child to see, no matter where the child is growing up. They could be in the country, they could be in the city. Most young children, if they've ever been outside, see a bird fly. Uh, and I'm sure you don't remember when the first bird that you saw fly. Um, so two, two comments about this. Um, first of all, it's very easy to forget just how unlikely flight is. 
this is one of the things I want to explore tonight. I hope I hope you get if if I've if I've convinced you of anything, I hope that you come away from tonight convinced that flight is extremely unlikely. Um, what a bird's body has to do and be in order to successfully fly is extreme. Uh, every aspect of a bird's physiology and metabolism is specifically tuned to make flight, which is kind of an outrageous thing, uh, possible. So my hope is that after tonight we will stop taking the fact that birds fly for granted as an ordinary occurrence uh, and accept that we're actually witnessing something outlandish every time we see a bird take to the air. Okay? So stay with me. <laughs> Uh, secondly, it's hard to imagine that humans ever would have taken to the air if not for the inspiration and instruction that birds offered. Um, just a little education here. Gary Larson in 1981 uh, hypothesized on prehistoric man's attitude towards birds. He sees a bird flying. He tries to fly really, really hard. He can't do it, so he makes a bow and he kills the bird. So, uh, Jealousy basically, is the, is the theme of, of this comic. Um, Leonardo da Vinci was inspired by birds when he dreamed about creating a flying machine, uh, something that never came to fruition as far as we know. The Wright brothers were finally able to realize that dream um, by creating a machine that um, would allow humans to, to have powered flight, powered human flight, as opposed to just gliding. It's a different thing. Something that's actually has an engine and it is moving through the air. Not until 1902. So this is one of their first uh, aircraft that they that they made. It's got two big propellers in the back. You can't see because they're rotating so fast. Uh, these two rudders in the front. They're actually in the front of the plane. They're for steering and for for um, elevation. But this is and then these I guess are some sort of tracks, kind of like a sled to land on. <laughs> This is not their first plane, but this is one of their one of their early planes. I think this one is nineteen oh three. But to, today, uh, human flight is a commonplace. To break the sound barrier is a is a commonplace thing. Um, pigeons are actually rock doves. I don't know if anybody knew that. Um, but what it, what it takes, a gigantic machine, huge airfields, uh, complex security and air traffic control, well-funded military sometimes, and thousands of gallons of carbon-producing fuel, uh, the most commonplace bird can do with their body. Uh, it takes a lot of technology to approximate what a pigeon does all day long without breaking a sweat. Um, birds don't sweat. That's the joke. But... Um, <laughs> Physically, like you know, literally, and, and whatever. Okay. Um, so let's find out how and uh, and maybe why birds fly. <laughs> we can't we can't possibly answer both those questions completely, but um, we're gonna we're gonna dive in anyway. Uh, my outline for tonight: the first section is in defense of creation nerding. Why a series on birds at all? This is sort of a justification for what we're doing. Um. Secondly, how is flight possible? What flight costs? Basically, what has to happen to a bird's body to, uh, for it to fly? Thirdly, why fly? What wings allow? So it's kind of about the costs of flight as well as the, the freedom of flight, what it allows a bird to do. And then last, how to become a bird nerd, some practical steps. <laughs> 
So, uh, two reasons for doing this a lecture like this, uh, and I'm going to address one much more than the other. First, it's as a Christian, it's good to delight in the work of the Lord for its own sake. I mean, that, that is a worthy endeavor. Second, and I'll talk about this more at the end of the talk, um, taking an interest in and learning to love a particular part of creation is a necessary step towards caring for creation. If we don't notice or love or take an interest, we're never going to we're never gonna care for creation the way we're called to do as um, stewards. So first, it's good to delight in the work of the Lord. I think this reason alone makes talking about birds a legitimate way to spend our evening. Um, to delight in the beauty and the power and the unlikeliness of a bird because it is a particularly glorious work of God. This is a worthy way to spend some time. Maybe not all of your time, but some of your time. Uh, oftentimes when the Bible talks about the mighty works of the Lord, it's referring to his dramatic intervention in human history, or in the history of Israel particularly. We think of the plagues in Egypt, we think of the parting of the Red Sea, uh, the walls of Jericho crumbling and falling down. We might think of some of Jesus' miracles, we might think of Pentecost mighty works of the Lord in human history. These are examples of God's work in human affairs. Uh, it's God's governance or providence over human affairs. Um, they're also clear displays of his supernatural power. They're miraculous in the sense that he's altering the way creation usually behaves. Um, God chooses to have creation behave in one way most of the time. What a miracle is it's just him doing something different. That's what a miracle is. Um, in order to achieve his ends. Uh, but the phrase, the mighty works of the Lord, can also refer to his creation. The things he's made. Uh, insects, trees, grass, fish, birds, are all mighty works of God. Even though we think of them as part of the natural world. right? Um, there's actually not... The, the distinction between natural and supernatural is, 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 uh, needs to be carefully defined. The natural world doesn't actually really exist if what we mean by that is a sealed box that nothing, that, that nothing supernatural can interact with. In reality, the, the natural world is buoyed up and has its existence because of the supernatural world in every moment. Right? So that the distinction is in some way a false one. But in any case... Uh, it's important to attend to these mighty works as well. Not just the mighty works of God in the history of his people, but the mighty works of God in creation. And I'll give you two biblical um, examples where the Bible is encouraging us to do this. One, both are from the Psalms. One is a positive example and one of it is a warning. <clears throat> Psalm 111 says, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. I love this because it's, it's praising the works of God in creation, and the people who study them delight in them. <laughs> There's this idea of study and delight that go hand in hand. And then Psalm 28 is more of a warning. It has, a, it has, it's, it's actually a, this whole section of Psalm 28 is, is our words of judgment on leaders in Israel. It says, "Give to them according to their work and according to the evil of their deeds. Give to them according to the work of their hands. Render them their due reward, because they do not regard the works of the Lord or the works of His hands. 
He will tear them down and build them up no more. Now this can mean all kinds of things. Uh, Having no regard for the works of the Lord or the works of his hands, that could be social injustice, that could be oppression of people. Um, But in the last year or so, I've come back to this psalm again and again and thought, well, could could this also be an exhortation to, to have regard for the works of the Lord in creation, the works of his hands? So these texts imply that it's not simply a matter of taste whether people study and appreciate the things that God has made. Rather, it's something we had better do. Uh, these texts and many, many others, just to name a few, Psalm 8, uh, famously Psalm 19, we'll, we'll look at that a little bit later, Psalm 104, Romans 1, section of Romans 1, as well as many of the sayings of Jesus, all of these texts contribute to a, an idea that the Reformers came up with, uh, I, think the, I think it came about around the Reformation, that there's these two books of God's revelation. God reveals himself to people in, in different ways. One way of thinking about it is an analogy of two books. The first book is the book of Scripture, which is a literal book. And sometimes we talk about it as special revelation. In other words, something that God, in a very particular way, reveals about himself. The story of his redemption, the story of him entering into human history. But then there's a second book, which is creation, which is a figurative book. It's not a literal book. But it includes the entire created world around us. And this is one part of what we sometimes call general revelation. Something that you don't have to be a believer to notice and learn from. To to seek out the works of the Lord by investigating creation is as spiritual a discipline as searching the scriptures, I think. Uh, because these are actually interdependent practices to, to search the scriptures and to search creation to learn something about God. These two practices are interdependent. They shouldn't stand apart from each other. And this is really not a stretch if you think about it, because the Bible itself tells us to engage in the spiritual discipline of learning from creation. So even if we just look at the Bible, the Bible tells us to, to look away from the Bible. Uh, we're told that creation is speaking about God all the time. And that we will learn about his power and wisdom by looking and listening and feeling and tasting and smelling. Jesus directly tells his listeners to consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable you are than birds. I get really excited about birds, but I'm never going to contradict this. Um Jesus says, consider the ravens. I feel like he could have used any number of different birds. <laughs> so I'm not sure there's something specific about raisins. Ra- raisins? <laughs> ravens? Uh, it's not just because ravens are interesting. They really, really are. They're actually one of the most intelligent creatures on earth. Um, but because according to Jesus, it's by close observation of these birds that we will best begin to understand God's provision for us. And perhaps stop worrying so much about where the things we need are going to come from. So to not closely observe how a raven feeds itself and feeds its young, uh, if we don't do that, we will miss out on this spiritual insight. In other words, if we do not read the second book of creation, we will not rightly understand the first book of scripture. So the two books are mutually interpreting and mutual, mutually reinforcing. They shed light on each other. I need creation to rightly read scripture. 
Think of all the things you wouldn't understand at all if you hadn't looked around you. Think of all the agricultural metaphors that Jesus uses because people would have seen this and looked around them. Uh, but I also need the Bible to help me interpret creation rightly. Creation doesn't just explain everything about God. Um, I need scripture to rightly read creation in a sense. This is a huge topic. I'm not going to get into this tonight really, but I'm just uh, going to make that point and move on. In order to read the two books well, we sometimes have to shift our attention mainly to one of the books while holding the other in the the other hand, so to speak. Uh, And that's something that I want to try to do tonight. Uh, Not everyone has to become a, a bird fanatic. But, but there is a challenge in my, in my lecture tonight. If there is no part of the non-human creation that interests you, if there is no part that makes you curious and excited, beware. Lest you become someone who has no regard for the works of the Lord. Um, get interested in something. To not at least try to delight in creation is like saying, when God hands you the two books... No thanks, God, I'll just stick to the Bible. I got this. And it's not a good place to be spiritually. So uh, we will be oblivious to one of the main ways that God wants to tell us about himself. In Romans 1, Paul talks about God's invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature, that can be clearly seen through what he has made. And part of the folly of humans that Paul describes in Romans 1 is that we refuse to see it and give thanks to God for it. And that's kind of the root of a bunch of folly that that comes. Our darkened minds result from that. So as we studied birds, I think we can perceive something. because As long as we're holding the first book in one hand as well as the second book in the other, I think we can perceive something about God's love, something about his gentle attention to very tiny details in his world, something about his boundless imagination fierce creativity uh, and even at times although this is a very subjective uh, sense of humor maybe well, that's, it's not, that's, that's a harder point to make I think but what we think is funny I, I don't know if God thinks it's funny I don't, not always I don't <laughs> well, why birds particularly again I'm justifying what we're doing tonight just to make sure in case there's someone who isn't on board who stumbled in by accident finds themselves <laughs> unable to leave. <laughs> um, as with almost any other aspect of creation, the closer and longer you look, the more beauty and complexity you will find. This is the truth almost anywhere you look. And the deeper potential for wonder, the longer you look. Some aspects of creation require very deep and difficult dives to reach this gold. Right? Some people... Spend years and years learning everything there is to know about moss, or damselflies, or leeches, or fungus spores. Uh, These are fascinating things, but mostly for the specialists who are prepared to make an extremely focused study off the beaten path, right, in their specialty. Maybe alone in a lab, late at night. (laughs) Not, Not a lot of... Not crowds gathering around to hear what they have to say about fungus spores. Um, This is not the case with birds. Birds are comparatively easy to find, easy to engage with, and easy to love, compared to lots of things in creation. Uh, They're beautiful, they're charismatic, and fascinating to watch. It does not take a lot of effort to get some payoff of enjoyment. 
You don't have to look long before you see something interesting. In other words, my brother Tim is a ornithologist, and he works for um, he studies migratory shorebirds on the coast of, of Georgia, mostly shorebirds. We were talking on the phone the other day about this phenomenon, how how, how immediately accessible birds are. And he referred to them as low hanging wonder fruit. <laughs> Which I was thinking, like, that would make a great band name. And then I'm like, no, it sounds a little dirty or something. But low-hanging wonder fruit. Um, to me, though, uh, this is another way of saying the same thing. To watch birds is a dangerous gateway practice into the rest of creation. Uh, it's an easy, soft way in. Uh, but before you know it, you might be dabbling in much harder stuff. Uh, you may get your PhD in, in moss and lichen. You never know. So uh, you may be the next you know, expert on dragonflies, but all you need to do is start paying attention to birds. You never know. It's a slippery slope. So uh, whenever Christians talk about appreciating God's work in creation, the go-to scripture is very often Psalm 19. It's a wonderful psalm. It's talking about observing um, the works of God. This is the very beginning of the psalm. The whole thing is great. We're just going to look at the, two, the first two verses. <clears throat> the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. Look at the verbs. I think I've tried to highlight them. I'm not sure it shows up very well. But um, creation declares and proclaims and pours forth and reveals all too often, Christian people accept this as an abstract proposition. This is a statement of fact. In other words, now we know the creation proclaims the glory of God. Check. This is a, a doctrinal statement. As if it's first and foremost a doctrine rather than an invitation. Uh, as a result, we make, I say we, many, many, many Christian people sadly make very little effort to find out what creation might actually be saying. Psalm 19 is an invitation, actually, to taste and see, but it's not an invite that many of us accept. We, we take note, and we label it a doctrine, and then we move on. Uh, it actually takes work, because the heavens and the earth do not communicate in human words, so effort and observation will be necessary to decipher, to interpret what is being said about God. Um, it's a different sort of language. But the psalm assures us that we will know God better if we make the effort. So from a Christian perspective, the natural sciences are all about investigating the speech of God through the things that he makes. And this is one of the reasons why it's so sad that faith and science have, have, have sort of have this rift between them, at least in the public mind, and certainly historically at times. But, but uh, in terms of the... The, um, the origin of modern science is absolutely a Christian endeavor, and, and all the first scientists were Christians. <clears throat> Perhaps some people are afraid, uh, I don't know, the, that the more you investigate in the natural world, the more your faith will be threatened. This is a much longer conversation. Um, but I'll just say it's perhaps more dangerous to be indifferent to creation. Um, we will not be getting to know our Father in the way that he tells us to get to know him, one of the ways he tells us to get to know him. Uh, what if our faith is in danger by not ever thinking about the natural sciences? Um, so, uh, you may have heard that the study of theology is sometimes referred to as thinking God's thoughts after him. Um, the study of creation can be this. Uh, 
but it's more than just knowledge acquisition. The study of creation is also delighting in what delights God along with him. In the present tense. We will not just know that God said good on the fifth day of creation as a, as a propositional fact. But we will experience that goodness. We'll begin to see why he might have said good. We will perhaps even agree with his assessment by being delighted ourselves. And by echoing his words. Good! I've, I've, I've felt this way, this kind of exhilaration after a day of bird watching, believe it or not. Uh, what God has made is good! Particularly if you've seen something you've never seen before, or something, something astonishing um, that you've never seen before. So, this is really at the heart of praise and worship and thanksgiving and adoration. All the things that we affirm as being very important, right? Acknowledging that something God has done is really, really worthy of admiration and approval. Uh, and it's not just his works in history, it's his works in creation. <laughs> Lastly, if you still don't believe me, uh, I feel like there's some buy-in. I'm not sure. It's hard to read. But uh, if you still don't believe me, there are valid precedents for bird watching as a Christian endeavor. So, um, John Stott, uh, the great Anglican theologian and writer, uh, was well known for being a, a certifiable fanatic about birds. He's seen here with his library and his binoculars in his hand. Um, Stott coined the phrase ornithology, <laughs> ornithology being the study of birds, ornithology being the way in which we look at birds and can learn to know God better. Um, the book of creation. <clears throat> Peter and Miranda Harris, uh, who started the uh, ecological Christian organization called Arasha, Wonderful people. Uh, Miranda has, has passed away. Peter is still with us. Um, he's been here before. He's a, he's a, uh, a gem of a human being, uh, but very passionate about creation care and very knowledgeable about birds. Arasha, the, the organization that is, has branches in many countries now, but it began as a bird observatory in Portugal. That's what it was um, because of their passion for bird uh, conservation. Okay, uh, from now on, we'll be mostly holding up the book of creation. Uh, we'll still have the Bible in our other hand, uh, but we won't be talking about it as much. But hopefully, hopefully that you, you agree with me. That's an okay thing to do. All right. How is flight possible? What what does it cost? <clears throat> how is it possible for a bird to get and stay airborne? There are two overarching challenges that need to be overcome to get in the air, to stay in the air, and to move through the air: lightness and power. Basically, uh, lightness, flight requires a bird's body to shed every bit of unnecessary weight. It has to be light. It can't be a heavy animal. The more you study a bird's anatomy, you'll realize that lightness is a huge priority. Uh, and power, a bird has to be incredibly strong relative to its size and weight. So an elephant is incredibly strong. But it's also gigantic and heavy, right? Uh, a bird has to be really, really strong relative to its to its size and weight. <clears throat> and this uh, requires a bird's body to do all kinds of things. Uh, a bird needs to be incredibly efficient in its respiratory system, in how it processes oxygen. It has to be. Uh, it has to have an incredibly efficient metabolism, particularly when you. Uh, when we talk about migration, which we're not going to we're not going to talk about it too much tonight because it's too big a topic, but maybe someday we'll we'll do that. Um, and a bird needs to have extremely powerful muscles uh, and a skeletal structure that can support those muscles. 
So these two priorities, lightness and power, well, they'll come up again and again. Uh, it's their ability to meet these two challenges, lightness and power, that explain why birds are without rival in the in the powered flight department. And when you look at animals in the world that can fly, you know, there's you know, flying fish. They're called flying fish because they they have these big pectoral fins and they can jump out of the water and glide for a little ways to get away from predators. It's really you should look at videos. It's fascinating. Uh, mammals like flying squirrels can glide. They climb up a tree and they jump off and then they spread their their four limbs and the flaps of skin that are between their their hind and forelegs basically create a parachute and they can glide from tree to tree. Again, fascinating. Bats are pretty good at flying. Definitely the best mammal. Uh, they've got this membrane that's stretched between what, what would be the fingers of their of their forearm. Uh, insects. A lot of insects are great flyers. No no uh, no insults to insects tonight. But birds are just the best, um, and nobody would nobody would uh, would contest that. Here's a slide of uh, a jeer falcon. It's the biggest falcon uh, in the world, and uh, it's it, this is a, a falcon owned by a falconer, so it's a trained bird, and they're flying with a lure on the back of a jaguar on a airstrip. <laughs> To, to clock the, the jeer falcon and to see how fast it's going. And this is, without even trying very hard, it's, it's doing about 70 miles an hour just behind this, behind this jaguar, hitting the lure, and it's just, it's pretty amazing. Uh, then that's straight flight, straight powered flight, meaning wing beats, you know. <clears throat> Get a little emotional thinking about it. <laughs> How do they do it? You know? uh, let's start with the idea of a feathered wing. So this is this is our Massachusetts state bird. This is the chickadee. Uh, it's a surprising picture because in some ways, when you think of a tiny bird like a chickadee, you have no idea how huge its wings actually are. When they're fully extended like this, it's it's impressive. We don't we don't we don't often see this because it happens so fast. Uh, we would never see this. Ch- chickadees don't. Don't spend time like this for us. Um, this is this is literally a millisecond of time. Um, <clears throat> but what is a wing? A wing uh, is an arm that's capable of creating lift. We'll talk about what that means. In other words, uh, it's an arm, it's a foreleg on an animal that's also an airfoil. So an airfoil, that's a, sort of a technical term. This is It's not the best diagram, but this is the... This is a cross-section profile view of a wing. So this is the front of the wing, and this is the very back of the wing. The wing is going in this direction, if it's not clear. Um, <clears throat> as the wing moves through the air, so from, uh, from your left to your right, air molecules push up against it and are forced to go around it. As you can see, the wing is sort of a teardrop shape. It's rounded and thicker in the front, and then it tapers off to nothing in the back. It's also flatter on the bottom and gently curved on the top. So the two surfaces of the wing, the bottom and the top, are not symmetrical. They're not parallel. Uh, They're not the same length. Um, these two features, basically, that it's teardropped and that the, the bottom and the top are different lengths and different shapes, force air molecules above and below the wing to take very different paths around the wing. 
So air flowing over the wing has to travel farther. Uh, it actually forces air molecules to spread out. In contrast, the air molecules going underneath the wing have less distance to travel, and they stack up under the wing. And this creates basically uh, a difference in air pressure, a gradient of air pressure above and below the wing. So there's a high pressure zone under the wing and a low pressure zone above the wing. And what happens when you have a high pressure and a low pressure zones? Uh, it's basically a vacuum. The top of the w- the air on top of the wing is a vacuum relative to the air below the wing, and the whole thing lifts up. Uh, it's most easily to observe this when you look at a very large bird that's in a very long straight glide. It's doing nothing except gliding. You see this if you spent any time by the ocean on either coast. You might have seen brown pelicans do this. They just fix their wings and just go. They don't even move their wings at all for hundreds and hundreds of yards. Sometimes they're 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 riding air that's coming off the water off of waves, and they'll do it just a few inches from the surface of the water without moving. And you'll see them go from one horizon to the other without even moving. You're so what in the world is happening here? Um, <clears throat> they're masters at flying in formation too. You'll see a whole row of them doing this together. Um, <clears throat> they don't need to flap because their wings are huge, and they're creating the perfect amount of lift continually just by holding their wing in position. This is a fantastic creature. I've never seen one before. Someday I'd love to. Uh, a northern hawk owl. Um, very fast, almost falcon-like owl. Uh, but you can see this picture. I could have picked any number of pictures, but the whole, the whole bird is an airfoil. The whole bird is teardropped, tapers off to its tail, and it's just made to shoot through the air and create lift. Um, obviously, its wings do it, but the whole the whole shape of the bird is made for aerodynamics. <clears throat> but uh, for lift to happen, there's a problem. Uh, lift can only occur if there's airspeed. You have to be moving fast <laughs> for for lift to take place because the, the air molecules need to be rushing past the past the wing. Uh, there needs to literally be enough, literally be enough air passing over and under the wing to create that pressure difference to to uh, to lift the wing up. You've all experienced this during takeoff on a plane. When you're you're going down the runway, the plane starts to move. It gets faster and faster and faster, and you're you're wondering how long is this runway again? And and then suddenly it takes off. Um, that is the pilot trying to get enough airspeed so that the wings can lift the body of the plane. Uh, a plane that cannot get enough airspeed is is not a plane. It's not. It's a bus with, with wings. Um, so it needs to go because the plane is heavy. It needs to go really, really fast for the wings to to lift to lift it off the ground. This is the right one. This is why uh, runways are so long. There are many, many different ways that birds achieve airspeed. Uh, the most obvious one is just by flapping really hard. <laughs> a bird can create a lot of speed by, by propelling itself through the air with its wings. Uh, pigeons and doves are, are classic because when they first take off, they make a racket. You know, you, you can hear it. You know, you can hear it from really far away. That's that's the sound its wings are making, pumping against the air. Uh, usually, after a few seconds, they level out and they don't. They're not pumping as hard and they don't make as much noise. 
uh, and that's because it takes a lot of energy to get the airspeed that they need to actually get going. And that's why it's so incredibly loud when they take off. Um, sometimes birds achieve airspeed by running. This is a common loon, the water bird. Uh, very common in this part of the world, in northern lakes and ponds. You'll hear them sometimes at night making a crazy noise. Uh, loons, along with a lot of other birds, are pretty heavy. They're really a water bird. They're made for, for swimming under the water. Uh, they've got a big body and pretty small wings relative to the body. You can see it, it's, it's got these fairly narrow wings and a big bulky body. Uh, in order to get off the water, a loon has to pick up a significant amount of speed, and it does it by spattering. It's called spattering, where they run as hard as they can on the surface of the water, making a racket and a mess, as you can see, uh, but and flapping at the same time to try to get enough speed to actually just to lift off. And they actually can only take off on the water. A loon will never take off like from the ground because it can't run on the ground. <laughs> That's this is one of the reasons why they uh, they need to be on the water to actually both land and take off. <clears throat> and they can do this because they have amazing webbed feet. This is a loon stretching. <laughs> a bird without webbed feet couldn't even begin to, to run on the water. I don't think that's just a superimposed picture of a foot behind the loon. <laughs> it looks like it, Birds can gain airspeed. This is kind of cheating. It's not really airspeed, but um, by facing a strong wind. You'll see this on the beach. If anyone's been to the beach uh, where you used to have a seagull that's, that's sitting there in the air, not moving, looking for potato chips or whatever, um, they can only do that because they're facing the wind, and... Um, the wind that's blowing towards them is creating the lift for their wings. Basically, the wind, the air itself is moving over the top and the bottom of the wing, which creates a lift, uh, as if the wing was actually moving through the air, which it's not. But it, but it achieves the same, the same thing. And this, watching birds as they master the wind and know how to use the wind to their advantage is really, really beautiful and fascinating thing to do. They're just masters at, at taking advantage of what the air is doing. Particularly a big bird like a gull that has big wings, and you can just you can literally just watch them do it. You can watch them adjust to, to what the air is doing. Um, lastly, a great way to gain airspeed is just by dropping. So uh, the easiest way to to get some airspeed, if you happen to be perched up high, is to fall off your perch. <laughs> uh, Close your wings up and let gravity do the work for you. So if you close your wings up and you fall off your perch, you get going very, very fast. Uh, and birds will do this all the time. This is a red-bellied woodpecker. It's a common woodpecker around here. Um, woodpeckers are really great at this. They'll just drop and fall like a bullet, and then they get going really fast. Then they open their wings, and they're, they're good to go. They have the airspeed that they need. So you'll see a bird up high fall vertically uh, with its wings closed, open its wings up, and then, and then actually uh, glide horizontally. <clears throat> okay, I keep getting lost because I keep walking away from my. Uh... And any bird that that's cliff nesting or cliff dwelling will will do this. They'll just, they'll just jump, you know, and, and fall to get airspeed. 
So that's that's the basics on lift and airspeed. Um, what gives the wing its particular shape? We're looking at the airfoils rounded as teardropped. Well, um, we're talking about feathered wings. Birds have feathers. Feathers are one part of the solution to the problem of flight. Feathers hugely increase the area of a wing. They make it big, which increases the impact that a wing has on the air. If you think of the, the impact that a wing has when you flap down, if it's big, it has a lot more impact than if it's small. Feathers make increase the area of a wing while adding almost nothing to the weight of the wing because feathers are extremely light. They add something to the weight, but they're, they're very, very strong and very, very light. The term featherweight is there's a reason why people say that. Um, this is the wing of a mallard, which is the, the most common duck in the world, probably. Um, <clears throat> most birds have a pretty similar layout of feathers on their wings to this. Bird feathers are divided into distinct groups. You can see them. I like this picture because you see very distinct groups of feathers uh, clearly. Primary feathers are flight feathers. These are the, the, the big, long ones on the end of the wing. So just, just to be clear, this is facing downward. So the bird's head is down here. The tail will be up here. If it was flying, it would be flying that way, right? So, uh, but these are the primary feathers. <clears throat> these are the workhorses of powered flight. So they sometimes look like fingers on the end of, the, on the, of a wing. They're usually the longest and the stiffest feathers. They're, they're actually quite flexible, but just very, very tough because they take a beating. Literally, they take a beating uh, to keep an air, a bird in the air. When a bird's flapping hard and moving fast in level flight, it's the primary feathers that are doing the bulk of the work. Uh, most birds in full plumage have exactly 10 primary feathers on each wing. When a bird is molting, you'll, it'll drop a feather here and there. You may find a wing without 10, but most, most of the time in most birds, there's 10 primary. Kind of an interesting even number to... Yeah. Fascinating fun fact, um, something that you never see in real time because it happens so fast. For many birds, particularly... Um, Songbirds with smaller wings, slightly less less uh, stiff feathers, on the upstroke, basically the upstroke of a wing, the primary feathers twist, allowing the end of the wing to pass smoothly through the air without much drag, basically without pushing the bird down. Um, and then uh, on the downstroke, the primaries return to their flattened position, which creates a maximum resistance and moves the most air and propels the, bo- the body of the bird up. And again, this happens so fast, you would never ever know. Um, you can see it, it's just the similar principle if you, you know, if you're learning how to swim as a kid, you know, your swimming instructor tells you, if you want to paddle, don't paddle with open fingers. <laughs> Doesn't do any good. You need to cup your hands, and then you can actually move the water, right, and you can stay afloat. It's the same idea. Uh, this mallard wing, back to the same slide, uh, those are the primaries. The secondaries are these blue ones here. They happen to be blue in the mallard. They're not blue for everybody. Um, <clears throat> sort of a neat row of more rounded feathers, and they provide the wing with most of its gliding power. If you think of the cross section of that airfoil we saw before, this all this is pretty thick right here, and it all tapers back to being literally the, the, the thickness of one feather. So, so this, the back of the wing is is thin all the way along, and the secondaries are very are very helpful in in gliding flight. <clears throat> I'm just going to 
use this different diagram because it's a little easier. So now we're, just to be clear, now the wing is going this way. It's flipped up, flipped the other way around. The bird's head is that way. Okay, good. Um, the coverts. Can you read those? Uh, so there's primary coverts, which is the next layer of feathers. Their, their purpose is basically to cover and protect the roots of the primaries. So they overlap them. And those are the primary coverts, and then there's the secondary coverts, these ones right here that cover up the whole row of secondary feathers. They also basically provide a, uh, a smooth aerodynamic surface for the top of the wing. And the marginal coverts are literally the leading edge of the wing. The feathers get smaller and smaller up here until they're really, really tiny, and it just creates an incredibly smooth surface. And then scapulars, or or they're also called tertiary feathers. These are very soft, um, pliable feathers that basically create a connection between the wing and the body of the bird, so that it's, the wing isn't just like there's there's a big gap between the wing and the body. <clears throat> One last thing to notice about bird feathers, uh, and this I think this this diagram you can sort of get the idea. Um, because each feather is designed to tuck under its neighboring feather. So this this feather goes underneath this one, goes underneath this one, goes underneath this one, goes underneath this one. The, this feather actually goes down like that, but it overlaps, right? Um, because each feather is designed to tuck under its neighbor, and then each feather group tucks under the neighboring feather group, the entire wing can be extended in flight and then folded up and put away neatly by just overlapping. It overlaps on itself, uh, taking up a fraction of the space. This is why when you watch a duck swimming in the water, we saw that mallard wing before, all those cool blue feathers. This, this is not a mallard. This is a pintail, northern pintail. You can't see its wings. Uh, it's because the entire wing folds in on itself, and the only feathers showing are the tertiaries, the ones that, used to, that are to connect the bird uh, with the wings. Those are the ones that are on top. Then you have the secondaries and the primaries underneath it, but you, can, you can't even see them at all because they're so compacted on the back of the bird. <clears throat> so, that's enough about feathers. Uh, let's talk about the bone structure in a wing. So, uh, the slides, this side I think gives us a little picture of the similarities between a, a human arm and a bird's, a bird's arm, a wing. You've got a humerus, say the equivalent bone of humerus, which is the bone that all of us have in our upper arm. You have radius and ulna, which are the equivalent of the two bones you have in your forearm. And then something different. <laughs> Rather than uh, separate digits, the phalanges, or what the bones are called uh, in, your, in a human hand, it's a simplified version of that in which the bones are fused together. So these, this bone can move a little bit, but these bones are fixed together. There's, only, there's, no, there's no movement really possible. <clears throat> this is because a bird does not need a lot of small motor control out on the end of its wing. All the heavy muscles that we have in our forearms, because we need to use our fingers, right? All the muscles that for our fingers are in our forearms. That's a lot of weight and that's a lot of muscle to be able to move your fingers. Uh, that is stripped on a bird. They don't need to. They don't need that level of control out on the end of their wings. Um, so there's not a lot of muscle needed on a wing, actually. Uh, 
the muscles that really power flight are all in the bird's breast, are all in the chest of the bird. The equivalent of our pectoral muscles. If you had massive big pecs, you, you, uh, and wings, you might be able to get a little bit off the ground. <laughs> so, uh, birds have two sets of flight muscles. Uh, one set of muscles for the downstroke and another set of muscles for the upstroke, right? For, for the down flap and the up flap. One would think that the muscle group responsible for the down flap would be in the chest area, just like ours, you know, I, if I want to move my arm really fast this way, it's contracting my pectoral muscle right here. This is what, this is what enables me to do that. Um, and one would think that the muscle that powers the upward stroke would be on the back, because that's the way it is with a human being. When I go like this, I'm, I'm flexing muscles that are on my back, right? Uh, muscles, basic principle of muscles, they can only contract and pull. They can't push anything. <laughs> so uh, if I go like this, it's because these muscles are pulling. If I go like this, it's because my back muscles are pulling, right? Um, that was the, my demonstration of uh, flapping for you all. Um, Actually, with birds, both sets of muscles are in the breast. This is a, this is a really fascinating, interesting, weird thing about birds. Okay, so this is this is the same, this equivalent skeletal structure of the wing. This is sort of the shoulder area of the bird. This is, we'll talk about this later. This is a, a keel bone that goes right down the middle. It's like a sternum, basically. Um, so this is as if the bird is facing you, flying right at you. That's what the. That's what it is. This is the muscle that control that, that powers the downstroke. And you can see how it does that. As it, as it contracts, the whole wing will go down. <clears throat> but the smaller of the two breast muscles, this lighter pink one right here, because it loops around the shoulder bone, it also contracts and lifts the wing up. <laughs> you see, so it's basically like a pulley system that functions uh, out of living tissue there, allowing the bird to have all its flight muscles on, in its front rather than any muscle in the back. <clears throat> and uh, a lot of what I'm saying tonight can be demonstrated on Thanksgiving when you cut up your turkey, because it's the same. It's really disturbing how much every bird looks like a turkey if, if you pluck it. <laughs> it's, it's sort of a very, very similar st structure under the feathers. Feathers make a big difference um, on, on why birds are beautiful and, and appealing. But the next time you cut up a chicken or a turkey, uh, you'll notice that the discerning chef will notice that there's hardly any meat on the back of the bird, right? <laughs> That's why you flip the bird. I'm just going to do that. Okay. That's why you, you, you flip the bird on its back to cut it up because all of the meat, all the breast meat is, is, is on the top there. So this, just for anyone who's never thought of this before, <laughs> this is the chest of the bird. These are its legs. They would, they would have a whole other segment of their legs right here with the feet on the end. And these are the wings. The head would be going out this way. And the tail would be over here. So the bird is on its back with, its, with, its, uh, with all the breast meat on the top. Um, and that's why we position the turkey that way, because that's where all the meat is to cut. There's almost no meat on the back at all. And that's for the very reason I just said. The, the, up, the, the, the muscle that controls the upstroke of a wing is also on the front of the bird. If, as you cut your turkey this Thanksgiving, you'll notice that there's actually two muscles 
on either side of that central bone. There's one above, closest to the skin, and there's one underneath. The one underneath is the one for the upstroke of the wing. I hope it doesn't turn you off of your turkey. Uh, It should just make it more interesting, right? Uh, So these muscles are huge relative to the other muscles on a bird's body. Uh, and because of their size and the constant work they do, they have to be anchored very, very securely to something very, very solid. Um, so as you cut up the turkey, at the, at the end of the meal when it's all cut up, what's the last thing standing? It's this massive bone going right down the middle of the bird, right? Um, it's big and it's flat. And um, this is the sternum. This is the equivalent of what uh, the center of our rib cage would be, except on a bird, it's called a keel bone because it looks like the keel of a ship. It's so it's so uh, pronounced, and it needs to be pronounced because of the amount of muscle that's connected to it and the amount of weight it has to handle. <clears throat> so here's a couple skeletons of birds. One standing. I think it's a gull. This looks more like a pigeon. But these, this is the keel bone here that the flight muscles are attached to. And it's a massive, big, big bone right down the middle of the bird. <clears throat> and if we look at the entire skeleton of a bird, there's a couple, there's many other things I can't get into, but, but um, there's a number of other things that are essential for flight. Uh, the rib cage is completely fused together and inflexible. So the rib cage does not expand and contract like a human's. Our rib cage has to be flexible so that we can breathe, inhale and exhale. It's constantly going in and out. Um, a bird's rib cage is fused, similar to the way the bird's phalanges are fused. Um, <clears throat> a bird needs its rib cage to be completely rigid to prevent it from flexing, which would absorb and dampen the impact of its flapping. Right? If, if it was constantly mo- uh, um, expanding and contracting the rib cage, you, it would be really inefficient. So the amount of force that the that the flight muscles are putting on that uh, central bone, like the, the keel bone. It needs to be force exerted against something rigid that isn't moving, right? Um, and so that's a flight would be completely inefficient. Birds probably wouldn't get off the ground if they had a rib cage like ours. But you may ask, how does a bird breathe if his rib cage cannot expand and contract? Uh, this is a super complicated question that I can't really answer very well. But I'll, I'll give you a little bit. I'll give you a really dumbed down version because that's the only version that I could that I can share with you. Um, if you think of the purpose of a lung, the purpose of a lung is gas exchange. Uh, in other words, an animal inhales fresh air, which contains oxygen, into its lungs. The lungs absorb that oxygen, put it into the bloodstream, while removing carbon dioxide from the bloodstream, putting it into the air to be exhaled. So that, that's what lungs do. It's an exchange of oxygen for carbon dioxide. Uh, in mammals' lungs, like your lungs and my lungs, the flow of air is, is bi-directional. In other words, the air goes in and it goes out uh, of the same passageway. So air comes in and out of the same, of the same organ. Um, there's only, you know, a very crude way of saying is that in mammals' lungs, there's, there's only one door. And it has to function as an entrance and an exit. <laughs> you, you breathe in, you breathe out of the same, uh, the same passage. Unlike us, a bird's lungs have a front door and a back door, which means that a bird's respiratory system allows for continuous unidirectional flow of air through the lungs at all times. So uh, 
oxygen-rich air is flowing through a bird's lungs continually, and they're expelling carbon dioxide continually. Um, totally different setup than a, than a human's. This is accomplished by a system of air sacs. There's a whole... Most birds have a ton of different air sacs throughout their whole body, but this is a very simplified version. You have some here, uh, the posterior and anterior air sacs that store oxygen that's yet to be processed in the lungs and then store oxygen or store air that's already been spent and is waiting to be expelled. So there's, it's, it's, it's complicated, but basically because of these air sacs, it allows the lungs to have a constant flow of oxygen coming through them, which just makes them really, really efficient. And which is the, the, the whole purpose of this is that when your flight muscles are pumping, say a bird's migrating a couple thousand miles in one flight, it needs to be processing oxygen and its muscles need to be just performing incredibly <laughs> in order to not fall out of the sky. So this is one of the, one of the ways that the birds are able to do that. All right. That's the extent of my knowledge about bird respiration. Um, it is true that birds have hollow bones. This is a, a image of the inside of a, of a bird's bones. Uh, most people think that it's, that it's, uh, and it's probably true that it, the main purpose of that is to make a bird lighter. Um, they're not actually hollow. They have this amazing structure of struts that, that actually make it really, really strong while being light. But, um, there's, there are studies that are, that are, that suggest that actually the air in the bird's bones is also being, is also moving and is actually part of the respiratory system. Uh, uh, which is just mind-blowing to me. So, um, anyway. <clears throat> so that's just a bit about how flight is even possible, what it costs the body, what a bird's body has to be and do to, to be airborne. Now, I wanted to change course a little bit and talk about why. <laughs> What's so great about flight? What, are the, what, are, what, is wing, what do wings allow birds to do? Um We've looked at a number of these physiological things that are crucial. Everything we've been talking about applies generally to, to the vast majority of birds. And uh, there's a huge diversity of different birds, and they, th- these principles are applied in all kinds of different ways, depending on what the bird is, depending on what they eat, depending on how they feed their young, depending on where they live, depending on whether they're smart and like to play. It's really, really interesting, the, all, all the different ways that these physiological um, principles are, are applied differently. Um, what does being airborne allow? It's a really fun question to answer because there's a million, a million answers. Uh, what kinds of behaviors does being able to fly afford a bird? I'll give you a very short caveat here. Wings are good for more than just flight. This is a little blue heron. You can't see anything but its wings, but it's using its wings to create sort of an umbrella over the water. Um, and it cuts the glare so we can actually see what's under the water. And actually, it actually gives the impression of cover <laughs> so that fish don't freak out. And it's the way it hunts, basically. It's creating this umbrella of shade, and it's able to hunt and spear little fish that are underneath it. Um, little blue heron. Fascinating. <clears throat> wings can be used for deception. This is a very common bird around here. It's called a killdeer. Uh, killdeer parents will very often try to lead predators away from their nest by pretending to have a broken wing. They'll stick their wing up in the air and kind of like jump away, away from their nest to try to tempt you, a predator, to follow it. 
and then uh, before you get close enough to, to pounce on it, it'll just fly away. Um, but the killdeer have developed this this behavior because they nest right on the ground. They lay their eggs literally just on the ground. There's nothing to protect them except the camouflage of the eggs. And so uh, the killdeer parents will do this. If you if you see a killdeer doing this, you're probably standing somewhere near its nest, and you should look around and try not to step on it. You should actually probably follow the killdeer because that's what that's what it's trying to get you to do. Um, <coughs> Wings can be used to, uh, to make as much noise as possible. This is a rough grouse. It's another, another common game bird around here. This is a uh, making as much noise as possible for the sake of courtship. Uh, the male rough grouse in the early spring will look for a, look for a log, and it will, it will pace up and down the log, and then it will beat its wings really vigorously. It creates this really loud, low-pitched thumping noise, uh, which hopefully attracts a female. It's called drumming. So if, if you're ever walking in the woods in the early spring and you hear like this, it's it's a male rough grouse, not flying, but just making a lot of noise with its wings. Another way that uh, birds use their wings other than fly is to protect their young. So this is a very common picture. This this is a this is an uh, an image that is familiar to the writers of the Bible. Uh, Jesus says this amazingly. Jesus says this when he's walking into Jerusalem at the end of Matthew. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you are not willing. So this is what God wants to do for us, right? <laughs> this is what he's saying, and we're, we're the chick that wants to just run away and do its own thing, right? Um, Psalm 61 says, I long to dwell in your tent forever and take refuge in the shelter of your wings, which is the same image. Uh, of being covered up by the wings of, 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 of a much bigger, much more powerful, um, in this case, bird. Um, the Bible never mentions uh, another bird. This I found this is called a chicana. It's a water bird that, w- that has huge feet and walks on lily pads. Basically, it needs the big feet to distribute its weight so it doesn't sink. But the chicana is capable of carrying its chicks by pressing them against its body with its wings. And this is Jakana walking along with a bunch of chicks. Their legs are hanging down. And so it looks like a spider, basically. But the babies all have huge legs also. And you can't see it. You can't see their bodies. You, the, the mom is basically just hugging them to her sides and then walking over this part. So the Jakana actually looks like this with two legs. And that's the baby. It's mostly leg. Um, so these are just a couple of of, uh, non-traditional uses for the wing Uh, but we're going to look at different kinds of flight now uh, each of which requires a different kind of a wing let's talk about gliding and soaring first Uh, only birds with very large wings relative to their body weight can do this this is a, a wandering albatross uh, wandering albatross can soar for days while hardly moving its wings. Uh, it's one of the largest flying birds on Earth. Its wingspan is approximately 11 feet. This is this is an eagle. This is the biggest bird we'd ever see around here, probably. Um, after fledging, 
the wandering albatross will spend the first five or six years of its life without touching land. Most of that time is spent in the air. They land on the water to feed, but they can sleep while they fly. Uh, G- GPS trackers have been placed on on wandering albatross and, uh, and have calculated that some birds will fly basically 10,000 miles before coming back to land all over the place. It's not just one migration. It's just, it's just flying all over the, the Pacific Ocean, basically. Um, and then that, that's what they look like on land. <laughs> just an enormous bird. Very, very heavy, and it needs wings that long to actually to even be airborne at all. Much more familiar sight is the red-tailed hawk. You see, is one of the most common birds around here on any sunny day. If you spend any time walking or, or driving on the highway, you're likely to see either one perched or flying around. Um, <clears throat> Red-tailed hawks are part of a, a family of hawks called Buteos, B-U-T-E-O, um, all of which have short tails and broad wings. You can see the shape of this bird, very short tail, quite broad wings, enables them to soar beautifully with very, very little effort. Uh, red-tailed hawks have mastered, along with all the hawks in that family, this, this technique of catching thermals. Thermals are columns of, of rising warm air on any sunny day. Uh, the light from the sun hits the ground and then warm air rises. And the red-tailed hawk can glide in circles, climbing higher and higher and higher in a big corkscrew, kind of a big spiral without even flapping its wings. It's, it's just flying in circles and basically kind of like going up a spiral staircase just by riding the, the warm air. Then if the hawk wants to actually go somewhere, all it needs to do is bend its wings... Uh, and glide down in a straight line and let gravity do its work. It can just, and you see them very often just like take off really fast. They're not, fla- they're not flapping. They're just going on a glide. Uh, interestingly, people that like to paraglide, it's this that they're mimicking. So paragliders that want to get it really, really high and go for a long, long fly, they go around and around and around and around in circles and gain altitude. And then, and then they can fly in a straight line without, uh, crashing. Um, same idea. During migration season, in particular places, if you go to Cape May, New Jersey, it's one of the best places in the world to, to witness hawks migrate in huge numbers. You may see a kettle of hawks. This is not even very many. You see thousands of red-tailed hawks and other budios circling around. They're kind of staging and then getting ready to, to migrate south. <clears throat> uh, one of my favorite birds, one of the weirdest birds I've ever seen, is a black skimmer. So, black skimmer again. It's related to a tern. There's all the, all different kinds of terns. It's, it's it's related to to terns. It has such control as a glider that it can cruise a few inches from the water, put its lower mandible of its bill in the water, and catch fish. And that's its main way of feeding. And so it has to have an incredible amount of control, and uh, to stay just the right distance from the surface of the water. Uh, so gliding and soaring, that's just one kind of flight. Many birds do not have that option because of the size of their wings. Uh, only birds with very big wings can pull that off. Uh, straight powered flight is a much more common thing that we see most of the time. You see a bird flying by, it's usually 
beating the air vigorously with its wings. Um, the majority of songbirds, shorebirds, waterfowl like ducks uh, work very hard to stay airborne. Uh, this is a top left is a hooded meganser. That's a, uh, a pretty common duck we see here a lot in the wintertime. Uh, Dunlin, which is a shorebird that migrates through here. This is a barn swallow, which are very common. We see them in the summers. And a common crow. These are just all birds that, that can't really glide for very, or soar much at all, but have to work hard for, for every moment of being airborne. Uh, some songbirds have developed a really distinctive way of flying. You'll see this with very small songbirds, like a, like a goldfinch will do this. It's one of the ways you can identify a goldfinch from a mile away, is they have this bouncing flight. They burst, a burst of wing beats, they go rocketing up into the air, and they close their wings and fall. And then they do it all over again. So it's this kind of swoopy flight. I couldn't find a good picture, so I had to draw that for you. Uh, and, they, and they actually sing in the rhythm of their flights. So if you see them, it makes this little song. It's a goldfinch. You, can, you don't even have to see the color of it to know what it is. Um, <clears throat> hovering. Another kind of flight. This is a Eurasian kestrel. It's uh, most birds that hover are predators looking for something to eat, and they need to stay still in the air. Hovering basically is just beating your wings in order to stay in one place. <laughs> it's like treading water, but in the air. So uh, any bird that has to this 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 bird is hunting for mice or for grasshoppers or something like that over a big open grassy area, and it needs to hover in order to in order to look and fix find a target basically. So that's what this this kestrel is doing. Lots of birds know how to hover. Uh, around here, you see belted kingfishers. Um, that's what this bird is here. It's a very big kingfisher. This is a European kingfisher, a little more flashy than the American version. Um, both very, very good at hovering over the water, and they're doing the same thing. They're basically staying in one position and looking for a target on the surface of the water, and then when they see their target, they close up and they dive for it. Um, the master of hovering, though, is, the, is a hummingbird. Has anyone seen a hummingbird this summer? Um, east coast of America is kind of a wasteland for hummingbirds. There's only one species, uh, ruby-throated hummingbird. It's a great bird, but west coast is many, many more kinds. South America is like candy land of, of, of hummingbirds. I picked the weirdest hummingbird that I could find for you, which is called um, white-booted racket tail. So it has a bunch of downy feathers on its feet for some reason. I don't know why. It has massive big tail with these little, <laughs> I guess, rackets on the end. Um, and hummingbirds uh, have an eerie, eerie capacity for um, for hovering in flight. They can they can fly very very fast and stop on a dime. They can fly backwards. They can fly up. They can fly down. They can fly in any direction at any moment. A hummingbird isn't limited by the orientation of its body. It basically, it could, it could fly 50 miles an hour backwards if it wanted to. So, fair, not that they do that, but um, it's really an amazing thing to watch. Um, <clears throat> so this bird is in South America. We don't get to see these here. Um, but basically, a hummingbird achieves this. This is another picture of it. <laughs> It's not gliding. That's 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 a split. That's a millisecond of time with its wings. A hummingbird basically stays stays airborne by uh, beating its wings in this figure eight. 
configuration. Its wings are going like <laughs> this is another demonstration, sorry. <laughs> its, its wings are going like this. Uh, and somehow that's that's how that's what gives a hummingbird like complete control in the air. Burns an incredible amount of energy. That's why a hummingbird needs to be eating nectar con- almost constantly uh, to survive. Um, but as you can see, these statistics here, I'm not sure if this applies to all hummingbirds, but uh, wings flapping approximately 200 times per second. Um, hard to fathom. Uh, and then just in passing, I'm just going to mention a couple of other different kinds of flight. Some birds are very loud when they fly. Some birds are completely silent when they fly. Uh, owls in general are known for being extremely quiet when they fly. There's a, uh, there's a great horned owl feather out here. I forgot to mention there's a table of feathers out here that are labeled. <laughs> Spent a lot of time on those, so don't, don't walk past them. But if you find the great horned owl feather out there and you compare it to the wild turkey feather, you touch it, it's, just, it's like velvet. Every surface of that feather has an extra layer of fuzz, basically. <laughs> Extremely uh, soft. And it's made basically to cushion the sound in the air. And so, uh, and I've seen this with owls before uh, in captivity, a gigantic bird can fly right by you and you, would have, you just don't hear a thing. Um, which, is, which is why they can ambush prey in the middle of the night. Owls are really almost the perfect organism in terms of what they're able to do, uh, to see perfectly at night. Um, some birds even fly underwater. This is a puffin cruising along underwater. Uh, they're really better at flying underwater than above. They can fly in the air, too, but they're better at flying underwater. <laughs> and you see that they, they catch fish this way. Uh, some birds are flightless on in the air, but are excellent flyers underwater. So these are emperor penguins, uh, one of the biggest, I think the biggest penguin um, in the world. But they're, they're like a torpedo in the water. And they catch all their food underwater like this. And then in order to get back onto the ice, they will basically rock it out of the water and like this. <laughs> and land on their bellies. Um, yeah. Okay, so I'm saving my favorite part for last. Another kind of flight is called stooping, uh, which is basically controlled free-falling. And many birds will do this. Uh, mostly it's predators hunting. And I'll just show you a couple of pictures. Uh, these are osprey. So an osprey is a big hawk. Tons of them around here. Uh, you see them in the summertime. Actually, the, the big bay just south of Cape Cod is called Buzzard's Bay. It was called Buzzard's Bay by colonists who came to Massachusetts, saw all the osprey, and said, oh, those are buzzards. So they called it Buzzard's Bay because there were so many osprey. Uh, in the 1960s and 70s, osprey were almost extinct because of DDT poisoning. Uh, and then a bunch of those pesticides were banned, and now osprey are very plentiful again. Not as much as they were, but if you go anywhere down on the Cape, anywhere near um, any waterways near the ocean, you're likely to see one. Uh, and this is what they look like right before they hit the water. <laughs> so basically, the, their legs extend way beyond their, their face, and, the, and their, their claws are what hit the, their talons are what hit the fish and the surface of the water. 
and they have to judge. Both kingfishers and osprey have to judge for the refraction that the, the, the water causes. So if we're looking down on the water, you see a fish. That's not actually where the fish is. <laughs> and osprey, of course, know this <laughs> instinctively, and they aim they aim in front of the fish in order to hit it. Anyway, fascinating. Uh, gannets are another seabird. Uh, phenomenal, huge, big bird, over six foot wingspan. This is what they look like right before they hit the water. <laughs> so they're flying around high in the air, looking for fish. Usually, it's a whole a whole flock of gannets, uh, basically pounding a school of fish. <laughs> and this is, and then suddenly, when the fish come to the surface, you'll see the gannets just drop out of the sky. It's like arrows. Uh, and it's quite terrifying. <laughs> but this is what they look like when they hit the water. Their wings are completely folded back behind their body so that they form an arrow, which means they can go deep in the water before they slow down. Basically, this is a, this is a way of like hitting a fish that's maybe 10 feet under the water. Um, and then the best one of all is the peregrine falcon. Um, which is, uh, it doesn't, you don't have to think it's the best one of all, but, um, the peregrine falcon is, is capable of extreme speed in straight flight. So it can fly very, very fast straight just by flapping. But their main method of hunting is they'll soar hundreds and hundreds of feet up in the air. And because they're a bird of prey, they have amazing vision so they can see what's going on below them. When they spot prey, which for a peregrine is always another bird. They, they eat exclusively birds uh, that they catch in the air. Um, when they see their prey, they'll close up and free fall headfirst at their target like a, like a bullet. <laughs> um, as they fall, they make... I'll show you, so these are, these are just a couple of pictures of peregrines stooping. Um, they can make minute adjustments as they're going with their wings and their tail as they're free falling. Um, yeah, but it's routine for them to get up to 200 miles an hour. Uh, National Geographic claims to have clocked a peregrine stooping at 240 miles an hour. I don't know if that's true, but uh, it's not unusual for them to be 100, you know, 180 miles an hour uh, straight down. Um, and if all goes well, they hit their prey, killing it instantly in midair. Sometimes they'll swoop around and catch it. Sometimes they'll find it on the ground. But um, if they're if they're accurate at that speed, nothing will survive the impact. <laughs> um, so they, they're they're able to take birds much bigger than themselves. Like they they used to be called duck hawks because they would kill they they eat ducks, and a duck is usually heavier than a peregrine. Um, they peregrines have actually made a big comeback because they're cliff nesters. Uh, they made a big comeback in cities, sometimes nesting on bridges and skyscrapers because they eat pigeons, and. Pigeons are actually a relatively stable source of food. So, um, anyway, it's very hard to learn how to do this properly. And so you, uh, there's lots of uh, interesting footage of parent peregrines dropping dead birds for their fledglings to catch in midair. They're basically training their young to learn how to hit a moving target in the air. Um, okay, so... Uh, again, I'm not going to talk about migration because it's too big a topic. It's very interesting, and uh, we'll, maybe if there's another bird lecture someday, we'll talk about that. But I want to talk about how to become a bird nerd. Um, feel free to stand up and get a, 
take a deep breath if you need to. Um, in ten practical steps. Um, <clears throat> you have heard it said, get a bird feeder. But I say unto you, get several bird feeders. <laughs> One with regular sunflower seeds, which will attract all kinds of different songbirds in the wintertime. One for thistle seeds, which attracts goldfinches and all kinds of other cool things. A suet feeder, which is basically a lump of lard with seeds in it, which will bring woodpeckers of every kind to your windows. And in the summertime, a hummingbird feeder, which is a lot of fun because all you need to do is put sugar water in it. And if you put it out for long enough, a hummingbird will find it. Um, And it's very, very fun to see them come so close. Uh... If you want to get really crazy, you can get a little feeder and put out uh, dry mealworms in the spring to attract bluebirds that are early migrants. They come back very, very early in the spring, and then they'll, they'll, they'll be attracted to those. That's number one. Number two, put your feeder near a window in a room where you spend a lot of time. A bird feeder near a kitchen window, if you do a lot of dishes in your life. I, there's a lot of dishes in my life. A bird feeder outside the dishes window is really great because you can watch birds while you're doing the dishes. Um, three, get a field guide and keep it near that window uh, and learn how to identify everything that comes to your feeders. So this is obviously something that you do over time. What is that? I don't know what that is. I've never seen that before. You know, Look for it. Look for it and find it. Uh, four, get a pair of decent binoculars. You don't have to get epic binoculars. You can spend as you can spend five thousand dollars on a pair of binoculars if you really wanted to, uh, but don't get crappy ones. Get ones that are good enough so that they actually improve your experience of looking at a bird, uh, and it will make a huge difference. Usually, most most binoculars for bird watching are about eight times magnification, and if you get a decent pair, you will you will see a lot of things you never would have seen otherwise. Number five, ask around and find someone who is an experienced bird watcher and go out bird watching with them. I do this with my brother whenever he's in town because you always see more when you're with someone who knows what they're doing, especially someone who knows bird song, because then you, that person will be aware of all kinds of things that you can't see, and then you can go look for them. <clears throat> uh, number six, if you're interested in shorebirds, Hawks or sea ducks. We live in a great place in Massachusetts, uh, especially in the winter time. We're coming on a gr- coming up to a great time of the year for bird watching. It's not comfortable. It's very cold. But if you go to the North Shore of Massachusetts, Plum Island, uh, which is an island off of Newburyport, or Cape Ann, which is where Gloucester and Rockport are, there's a lot of really really good places to go bird watching there, particularly for bird species that spend the summer in the high high Arctic. And then they spend the winter in the warm waters of Massachusetts. They come and spend basically winter here because it's so much warmer than their breeding grounds. Uh, If you're really into this kind of ocean bird watching, get a spotting scope, which will have a much greater magnification. Uh, There's a story. It's not a great story, but I'll tell it anyway. It's um, uh, This is a very common sight if you go... um, Bird watching in the wintertime with a spotting scope. These are eider. So these are common eider. They're, one, they're really big sea ducks. They, they spend the summer in the high, high Arctic, and they spend a lot of their wintertime 
off the coast of Massachusetts. And you'll see these, uh, the females are the brown ones, the white ones are the males. And, but occasionally, if you have a spawning scope, you'll see something that doesn't belong, but that likes to hang out with the common eider, and that is a king eider, which is just a spectacular, much, much more unusual bird to see. But my brother and I were, were bird watching with a spotting scope off of, off of Halibut Point, which is near Gloucester. And we came across the king eider in a, in a flock of common eider. And there was a random guy jogging by, not interested in birds at all. But he was like, God, yeah, what are you guys doing? And we said, come look at this. Just look, look through the scope right now. And so he did. And he was like, oh my gosh, what is that? Anyway, it was one of the most gratifying moments as a bird watcher because nobody really takes an interest in what you're doing and they think you're kind of a loser for doing it. And at that moment, it was, yeah, that moment has, uh, yeah. That gratification has had to last a long time in my life. Um, if you're a photographer... Get a good zoom lens on your camera and use it to go bird watching with it and take pictures because you'll see all kinds of things. As we learn, birds don't stand still. And so everything, this, this lecture, I should say like a, a thank you to all the photographers that made this evening possible because it's catching a moment, uh, which you actually never get to look at for very long. Uh, very reluctantly, I will say this. Oh no, not reluctantly yet. Uh, number nine. Uh, start to make a list of the birds you've seen locally. Uh, I made a huge stack of copies of uh, very common birds that you would see around here throughout the year. If you want to take one, please do. And it's a, it's a checklist of species of birds in categories. And you can, uh, you can check whether you've seen them or whether you've heard them. And start to see what you can find. The more you get into it, uh, the more you'll notice which birds come and go, which times of year, and you'll, you'll get a sense of what's migrating and what's not migrating. Uh, if, the more you do this, the more excited you'll get every springtime when certain birds you haven't seen for months and months suddenly appear from hundreds and hundreds of miles away. They show up. Um, and lastly, um, explore some of the smartphone apps you can get. Um, one that I have, which is excellent, is the Merlin app, which is a bird song app which you can just hold up and record anything, and it'll basically, 99% of the time, tell you exactly what you're hearing. And then you can go, you can access the file on that bird, and you can play that bird song back to the bird if you want to, and sometimes get it to fly right up to you. It's very useful, um, very helpful when, when if you don't know anything about bird song and you just want to know what you're hearing. Um, it's a lot of fun. Okay, to conclude... Um, Oh, these are harlequin ducks. You can see these in the winter here, too. <clears throat> Wendell Berry said this, People exploit what they have merely concluded to be of value, but they defend what they love. Um, to conclude that something has value means that its worth is quantifiable. You can calculate in dollars and cents what you stand to gain from it. And Wendell Berry, I think what he's saying here is that this is our tendency as humans. We tend to place value on things. And if we think of the value of a resource or a person as quantifiable, we're thinking about it as something that could be bought and sold, something that's a commodity. But if we truly love something or a person or a place, 
we no longer think about them as a commodity because its value is not quantifiable to us. Um, these are the things and the people that we love and defend. Uh, but for many of us, when it comes to creation care, we need to back up and start with something much more basic. We can't love something of which we're totally ignorant, right? So I think there's a progression here. This is what I want to end with um, tonight. There's a progression that I think is really important to think about as Christians engaging in God's world. Uh, we've been told to care for God's world, to be stewards of it. Um, the more we, in all of my future lectures on birds, <laughs> we will be reflecting on, on a number of different things. But as we reflect on migration, that's one of the areas in which you see the impact of environmental uh, crises on bird populations. So there are some species of birds that are, that are probably going to be extinct in the next 10 years because of how radically the earth has changed because it screws up their entire uh, yearly, annual uh, pattern of, of uh, migrating. So <clears throat> curiosity comes first. We need to want to look. When we're curious, we investigate. With investigation comes discovery, of course. And with discovery comes wonder. And it's the things we wonder at that we grow to love. And... When we love something, we're concerned uh, and we're aware that its loss would be a loss. Uh, and then we can, might actually do something active to care for it, to defend it, as Wendell Berry said. To put it negatively, nobody actively cares for things they don't love. And no one loves things that have not sparked some wonder in them. And no one wonders at things that they've never bothered to discover in the first place. So uh, that's where I'm going to end. And uh, I hope that you have lots of bird questions. <laughs> um, any kind of question is great. So at Labrie, we, we usually take some time to talk. Um, you can raise anecdotes or questions, and we'll go for a while, and then eventually we'll stop and go home. But if you need to go home now, that's fine. Um, but we're just transitioning to our time of discussion now. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of a big picture thought related to what you were just saying, but mm-hmm. um, are, are birds better off without humans trying to take care of them? Like, like if humans mm. didn't exist, uh, yeah, would, would creation be better off? Uh, because I'm thinking about this mm. term kingdom yeah. and uh, that we use to classify animals and in some sense, are you know humans the rulers of the animal kingdom, mm-hmm. uh, and yeah. So, do we should we make creation better, um, and mm. is it better when we're there? Yeah, really good question. There's a um, a lecture that I think Jim Paul, who's the director of the English Library, I think he just recently did. I, I need to get a I need to to listen to it. But it's, it has to do with this sort of imagining, I forget what it's called, but it's basically imagining humans as having a positive impact in the new creation. Um, the, the, the narrative that we're told today very often, particularly by secular environmentalists, is that the human race is a cancer on the world, right? 
Basically, the world is an organism and it has a disease, and its disease is humanity. Um, that's not a biblical perspective, right? Um, the, the, the biblical vision we're given uh, at creation is one in which there is everything that God makes is good, but it's not just the individual things that he makes that are good. He says good about the whole thing, which implies that it's the relationships between those things that are also good. So there's a, there's a harmony and a, a, a mutual coexistence that's actually good and healthy and designed by God. Um, I think that even before the fall, say, say, imagine that the fall didn't happen. Um, when, when God calls creation good, it's not the, the Greek sense of good as in static, unchanging. If you change it at all, then it won't be as good. It's, it's a Hebrew understanding of good, which is uh, much more dynamic. It's good, and yet there's room for more goodness. And so the human calling in creation was to exercise their dominion as human beings and bring about more goodness. It's not that there was something wrong, but it's that your impact in this world will bring about more goodness. And that's a vision that we need to to recapture for ourselves because it's really hard to imagine um, in a lot of ways. I think that there are ways in which human stewardship and creation might mean um, taking real action and and there are other ways in which it might mean not doing anything. (laughs) Um, When it comes to birds, I mean, uh, what... What I mentioned a minute ago about, I'll just put this picture up. This is a red knot. This is one of the, well, this is a bird that's very, very threatened. Uh, its population has, has, I think, plummeted about 75% in the past five years or something ridiculous. Uh, that might be the, that might not be a correct statistic, but it's very, very fast decline. And, um, anybody that studies red knots, uh, will tell you that it's a result of global temperatures changing. Their their migratory journey is from the northern sort of Arctic all the way to Patagonia with a staging place, which is like a, a pinch point, a bottleneck in Delaware Bay. Why? Because at a certain time of year, which is always the time of year historically that the red knots come through, the horseshoe crabs are laying their eggs. And... If they don't get enough fuel at that particular time, at that particular location, they won't survive the rest of the flight. They just won't even make it. Uh, but as temperatures generally, on average, are increasing, um, the timing is completely out of whack. <laughs> Birds are arriving too early, too late, um, and they're uh, either dying en route it's very hard. It's very, very hard to know exactly what's happening because these birds fly 80 miles an hour in the middle of the night thousands of miles, like how, how are you going to know? Unless you trap them and put radio tags on them or ban them, and you're lucky enough to have a scientist in Patagonia that catches the same bird and reads the band. And then you're like, ah, that's the bird that I saw. So there's understanding bird migration requires a lot of cooperation between scientists over many continents, but but essentially this this bird... This bird's survival is completely dependent on on a consistent 
uh, seasonal change, which is which is not the case anymore. Um, and so questions like that, it's pretty huge because it has to do with international cooperation and the political will to stop using as much, you know, fossil fuels. Ah, I don't know. You know, what do you do? Especially as an individual. Um, but this is the result of something that, um, something's already gone wrong, and if the red knot's gonna be saved, it'll have to be remedying something that's already gone wrong, right? Um, I think, uh, better stewardship would have been to, to cut down our carbon emissions a long time ago. <laughs> but, um, that didn't happen. It's a really good question. It's, it's, it's hard to put your finger on. Like exactly, what is, what is the human being's dominion or rule over creation actually mean when I don't seem to impact anything? You know, I don't, how can I help the birds? You know, um, and, uh, a lot of people who feel passionately about that would actually do go into biology and become ornithologists and actually do the kind of thing that my brother's doing, which is trying to keep track of populations that migrate through every year, um, to even understand it takes a huge amount of research on bird migration to even begin to notice that birds are going extinct. <laughs> it's, it's quite, it's quite uh, distressing. But yeah, I don't. Any other thoughts on that question? Because it's a really good one, and I, and and I don't think I've answered it adequately. But um, yeah, Peter. Well, with that question, I was reminded of a fascinating radio show, uh, which just gently reminded in, in a wonderful way that uh, we we are animals. Yeah. And we are, you know, we sometimes think that we're somehow above or, you know, beyond the animal kingdom. Hmm. But it was, it was just a reminder that, you know, we, there's a continuum here. Yeah. And, uh, and we in some ways participate in the same behaviors uh, but being the beings that we are we like to think of ourselves as somehow different or above or sovereign or, or, or having dominion and, and it was he, he wasn't trying to I think make a point other than just kind of remind us that we are they, they are us mm-hmm. in, in some way. Is this a, a, a Christian person making no, this point? No. Because no. no. it's, it's interesting. There's, I would say that there's, um, that's half of the, half of the picture. Right. Um, but because, right, it is very valuable because that's, that's the half of the picture that many Christians fail right. to see. Right. That, um, we like the part about us having the image of God. And being rulers over creation, which implies dominion and some sort of um, authority. Um, <clears throat> but we only stand over creation in one way. It's in our personhood. And that's what makes us that's what makes us like God. That's what we're in the image of God, so we can relate to him personally, which no other part of creation can do. In that sense, like yes, we're we're more like God than we are like creation. In another sense, in terms of our dependence and our, our creatureliness, we're no different than creation at all. <laughs> we're completely dependent on God and completely embedded in creation. So there's, there's, we, we, we sometimes, I think it's a mistake in these kinds of conversations when we start to think of it as a, um, 
as a zero-sum sort of thing where, like, well, we're Christians, so we believe that people are important, and so we should prioritize people over the natural environment. What, what that fails to recognize is that human beings depend on the natural environment, and it's not a choice that should be made. There's sometimes choices that have to be made, obviously, but ultimately, um, to care for the natural world, for, for the creation, is to care for the only place where we live. It's, it's human beings are as dependent on creation as birds are, actually. It's just that we have a lot more buffers because of our technology. I don't have to fly 7,000 miles, you know, every year to survive. I'm buffered in all kinds of ways from the effects of what we're doing. So, um, but we're every, every bit as embedded in creation as, as an animal is and dependent. Um, and the, the sad thing is with a lot of these conversations, um, particularly if we're in America and are fairly well off and, and are pr- fairly protected from some of the effects of the worst uh, environmental degradation, it's poor people actually that, that, that feel the effects of environmental crisis way before rich people in the suburbs. Um, and so to, to care about the environment is to actually, it's actually to care for the poor too, <laughs> um, in a way that we don't often think about. So it's, I get uncomfortable when the conversation is like, well, because we're in the image of God, because human beings are of more value than animals, which I agree, I agree with that assessment. Uh, but because of that, then, then we shouldn't waste our time thinking about, um, these other creatures and uh, the environment in which they live. It's like, well, actually, it's not a waste of time, and we should think about it because human beings are just as dependent. We may feel the effects a little later. Uh, yeah. Anyway, any other thoughts on that? That's, yeah. And not technically about this, just on how you sure. bird feeder or several bird feeders, <laughs> and there is an outbreak of bird flu in your area, hmm. the local agricultural extension or your local bird coalition or something may ask you to take your bird feeder down to encourage the birds to social distance. Is that true? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Because yeah. birds are more likely to pass disease around if they're clustered around a bird feeder. Oh, have you actually heard this? Like, like this was actually something that people said to do? I, I am not a bird nerd myself, but I am... I feel like you could be. So-and-so says to take your bird feeder down and live in this neck of the woods. Wow. So apparently that is a thing. Interesting. I've never heard that before. Yeah, yeah. If they were, to, if they would just mask up, they could still come to the bird feeder. <laughs> yeah, Paul. <laughs> I just want to point out that um, it's not simple and clear cut that burning fuel is just always bad for birds because mm-hmm. if you build a windmill instead mm-hmm. to generate electricity, then the birds are going to fly into the windmill and kill themselves. Mm-hmm. So you can't just say fossil fuel is the one way that is mostly harming birds. Yeah, you know, I, skyscrapers. Yeah, uh, they fly into the windows of the skyscrapers. Um, there's, it, it's very complicated. It is complicated, but I, I would disagree with you in the sense that the the, the long term centuries of burning fossil fuels 
is go to impact negatively bird populations way more intensely than hitting than a few birds hitting a windmill. Well, that, that's just the, that's, that's a fact. Different. <laughs> sure, sure it is. But but time. but the number of birds that are killed by windmills every year it's it's not it's not a huge number relative to the populations of birds that are tanking because of climate issues. But it's, it's just it's not even comparable. But I, personally, I think it's debatable that okay. global warming is happening purely because there's a lot more fossil fuel. Mm. Uh, that's a whole other discussion. It sure is, and it's a very contentious one. Um, I, I, I think I would probably disagree with you on that. It's not, it's not a debate we have to have right now, probably, but, but yeah, yeah. Yeah, any other thoughts? Yeah. I do think it's uh, pretty amazing how God provides everything that the birds need. Like we made reference to with that passage, right, that mm-hmm. uh, they're, they're part of this complex ecosystem, like mm-hmm. kind of globally, yeah, like that they're getting their food from all over the world. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. And their shelter and their water. And, uh, yeah, they don't need to, like, give... Dollar bills, <laughs> right, right, right. So yeah, like, they're not working nine to five and bringing stressing out about what they're bringing home. Yeah, it's sort of yeah. like uh, an economy and their specialization um, mm-hmm. and different roles in the economy, uh, but all animals. Yeah, it, it's it's when you when you um, you read the Book of Psalms and and many other places, it talks. Psalm one hundred four is an awesome mm-hmm. place to start, where it talks about. Uh, God providing for the needs of all these animals, and God providing for the needs of people. People are listed alongside the animals in a really interesting way. Um, but the way God provides for them, it's not like he's shooting manna down from heaven and all these... He actually is providing from them for them through the creation that's there. And so it's... it's yes, the raven, Jesus says, look at the ravens, God provides for them. God's provision for the ravens is dependent on the on the health of the natural environment in which the ravens live, because that's that's the system through which God provides them. And you see this with migratory birds hugely, where this say this is a bar-tailed godwit. Just have to mention this guy. This is this bird holds the world record for longest continuous flight without stopping, seven thousand miles. 7,000 miles across the entire Pacific Ocean without stopping, done in about, you know, six or seven days of straight flight. Um, what, how the bird is capable of doing that is just <laughs> completely unbelievable. Basically, the bird, you know, the entire internal structure of the bird atrophies over the course of that flight. Uh, its body is designed to basically shrivel up and then... <laughs> Um, but in any case, its its whole life cycle, year after year, is dependent on food that is plentiful in the far north. So it flies up through. It, its northern flight isn't as long. It stops in the Yellow Sea, which is a massive, big mud flat, basically. Feeds until it's gorged, <laughs> gets really fat, and then continues flying up towards the Bering Sea, towards Alaska. Breeds in breeds in Siberia and Alaska because that's that's where there's plentiful food at that time of year. The the babies grow up and fledge, 
And then in the fall, it starts to get super cold up there and nothing can survive. You know, the birds wouldn't have anything to eat. So in order to survive, they follow their food source. But they, it's their food sources in Australia and New Zealand. And so the, the exist, and this is, this is a behavior. This is a, a life cycle that obviously has, in God's wisdom, developed over a long, 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 long time in harmony with the climate of the earth. <laughs> right? And uh, completely dependent on the consistent consistent climate. Um, so yeah, it's just uh, that's the way that God feeds the Godwits. <laughs> right? And uh, yeah. Anyway, I'm just kind of yeah, Marty. I was really excited when you put Psalm 111 up mm-hmm. at the beginning because I have actually so, so over the last week maybe three, on three different occasions sat out on my patio read that psalm and looked up at the trees and looked up mm-hmm. at the, the leaves falling and the thought of the seasonal changes thought of the birds thought of the, the trees and, and just of this incredible creation God has made today mm-hmm. This morning, actually, I was thinking of blowing so hard, thinking of what the scripture says about the Holy Spirit blows. We don't, we don't, the Holy Spirit, we can't see the Holy Spirit in the same way we can't see the wind, and yet, um, in the same way that the wind accomplishes things when we can't see it, so Mm -hmm. the Holy Spirit accomplishes God's work. So I was really, really thankful that you, that you chose that. Mm -hmm. But I, but then it also made me think a lot of, of actually some of the stuff that your brother has said about um, you know, the, the phrase about studied by those who delight in them. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a as a Christian environmentalist working with birds and working in, in preserving God's creation, he's um, been so sad mm-hmm. to, to find that m- most of his colleagues, who are, but most of the people he knows who delight in God's creation are not Christians. Yep. Mm-hmm. And yeah. And in his experience, many of the evangelical Christians he's known are um, obsessing over how the world began and how it's going to end, yep. rather than delighting in the creation of God's name. Yep. And um, so he's, he's done a lot, you know, mm-hmm. speaking to that, as you know. Yep. Um, but it also made me think of just the responsibility and the, and the potential as, as how parents and teachers raise young children. Young children are, as you said, are they're fascinated by God's creation. They're fascinated by birds. They're mm-hmm. fascinated by a mud puddle. They're fascinated by the creatures they find in a stream. And to, and, and particularly in our culture, to think very, very consciously and proactively about introducing children to God's creation mm-hmm. rather than to screens as much as possible yeah. um, can can just do a lot to spark imagination, to spark this delight, mm-hmm. which then gives motivation to study. To study. Yeah. Um, my, my sister and her husband used to take, their, instead of having big materialistic Christmases, they would take, they would go to Florida to the Everglades and look at alligators and all sorts of things over Christmas. Mm-hmm. And the, the kids grew up being fascinated with creation, mm-hmm. and we're never bored with that. It's mm-hmm. another really interesting thing. If you, once you get into it, you don't get 
it's hard to be bored. Mm -hmm. The more you know, the less boring it gets. Yeah. And uh, it's just as a, I don't know, I'd love to see it, to see, to see more of that, more of getting kids out into creation. Um, yeah. Yeah, amen to that, yeah. for sure. Yeah, Sarah? No, I have been totally regretting not bringing Jacob and Lily over for this <laughs> lecture. <laughs> Which would be great. But uh, you started by saying, um, you know, we probably don't remember the first time we saw birds flying. Mm -hmm. But I do remember mm -hmm. the first time Jacob talked about yeah. seeing a bird fly. Yes. Yeah. And he was under two years old, mm -hmm. and it was his first full sentence, um, like standing mm -hmm. on the couch at the window of this little apartment we lived in in Vancouver, yeah. uh, watching a crow in mm -hmm. the tree outside. Mm -hmm. And the crow took off, and he said, yeah. the crow flew off the branch. Oh, my gosh, really? <laughs> yeah. of, of course he said that. <laughs> first full sentence. My kid's first sentence was like, <laughs> 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 but, uh, <laughs> I, I just want to also thank you for the, the language in your lecture. Hmm. And, particularizing language mm -hmm. uh, throughout it, mm -hmm. which I think is uh, a huge piece of delighting in mm -hmm. something, like gaining mm -hmm. the language to talk about it, to name it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That is also uh, an act of human dominion. Yes. And, um, yeah, so I think I would add to your list of 10 and 11. Okay. Okay. Excellent. Which would would be like learning the names of yeah. things and, and yeah. having the language to to speak about yeah. um, that which you love. Yeah. Because there's a fundamental sort of principle about language there. Like, you can't really even think about something unless you can name it. <laughs> we, our, our use of language enables us to even conceive of things that we might not have conceived of otherwise. It's really true. Yeah. And a lot of birds have beautiful names. It's worth just aesthetically alone, as a poet, like having a quiver of interesting <laughs> bird names and knowing what those names correspond to, like what they represent. Parts, the heel bone. Yeah. 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 yeah, and you think of heel keel over. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A or, ship, right? Yeah. Also a keel a keel is a massive big yeah. thing that goes down under the hull of a boat which keeps yeah. it from flipping over. Yeah. It, it stabilizes the boat when it's mm -hmm. tacking into the wind. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Awesome. A kettle of hawks? A kettle, yeah. That was yeah. to me as well. I don't know why like Maybe it's like a, a swirling cauldron of birds in the sky. I don't know. Sarah, I perceive a new series of poems. Yeah, it is. It's really, it is really fun. Um, yeah, there's a couple of other weird words that I think you only hear in the context of birds. I'm forgetting what it was. Kettle is one of them. Yeah. Spattering. Well, to spatter. Spatter. Yeah. Splatter. Yeah. You don't spatter. Yeah. Murder. Yeah. Blood spatter is, is when you blood spatter specialists are the police detectives. That, yeah. but that is a thing. <laughs> spatter. <laughs> I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
To stoop. Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah. To stoop. Yeah, yeah. So it's interesting that that word is the same as as what we would do to stoop over. But to stoop is just literally to. Um, did anyone ever see the Toy Story movies? Yeah. Buzz, Buzz Lightyear and Woody, the you know, and Buzz Lightyear's the cool toy who supposedly, in, in like the toy's imagination, can fly. But he does this thing where he like swirls around the fan and goes, oh. yeah. And Woody is like, that's not flying, that's just falling with style. <laughs> that's basically what. Yeah, that's basically what stooping is. It's falling with control, a, a good controlled fall. Yeah. Any other uh, thoughts and questions? Yeah, Paul. What's the explanation that... Is there any explanation for why birds lost flight? Or do scientists try to explain that? What? Sorry. Why why some lost flight? Well, some birds are flightless that used to be able to fly? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure there are. That's a great question. That's over my head in terms of my understanding. Um, There's a lot of um, scientific research done on, on both the origin of birds in the first place and why some birds are flightless that used to be able to fly. I mean, um, th- the short answer is I don't, I don't know the answer to that question. It's really interesting, though. I mean, that you you, uh, you have a really large flightless bird that clearly has wings that have feathers on them and... and, and Stands to reason that at some point or other they were used as wings, but for whatever reason, the bird has uh, developed behaviors that just don't don't require flying. I mean, a lot of flightless birds. Sadly, a lot of flightless birds uh, are now extinct because um, they were in very remote areas that had no predators. You know, so like places like New Zealand and you know isolated islands in the Pacific. There's species of birds that are flightless that basically um, were decimated by rats and dogs and things like that that were eventually introduced. Um, and uh, But they could survive and function perfectly well without the ability to fly because there were no predators. Um, one of the weirdest birds, I'm not sure how endangered they are, but I know they're not plentiful. Is a kiwi. Do you know what a kiwi is? <laughs> it's... it's, it's Native to New Zealand. New Zealanders are also called Kiwis. Uh, but, but the bird, the bird a Kiwi is, it's basically this ball with a really long beak and big legs and it burrows and it can't fly. It has almost hair. The feathers are very, very hair-like and it lays an egg which is like half its body weight. You can see like an x-ray of a kiwi. It's like the skeleton is this big and the egg is that big in its body. And you're just like, what in the world? Like, like this, this bird could only survive in an environment where there were no predators, right? Because it's, it's never going to make it off the ground. Anyway, yeah. I'm just, I'm just uh, free associating now. But that's a, it's a great question. Yeah. I, I know that there are, there are lots of answers that people would give to that question, but I don't know what they are. Are there kiwis still around, or do they all die? Out? They're 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 not extinct yet. Yeah, I, I don't I don't know how they're doing, but they're um, but they're not they're not extinct. The classic one is the dodo bird, which is actually a thing. There actually really was a dodo bird, um, but that that went extinct in the 1700s or something. Yeah. Um, but then there's there's other big flightless birds which are which are doing just fine, like ostriches. 
things like that that are uh, relatively resilient. But, yeah. Esther? That just made me think of in, um, in Job when God talks about ostriches. Oh, yeah. And, um, he talks about, like, Ostriches are stupid. They have small brains, basically, and they lay their like eggs just like in the middle of the ground. Yeah. <laughs> um, but then, uh, at least in one translation, it says like I think it describes it like ostriches can't fly, but things like, but she flaps her wings joyfully. Yeah. Like, that's what her wings are for. <laughs> <laughs> right, 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 right. Which is really kind of amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah. See you later, Paul. Says, like, okay. yeah. Thank you. Yeah. When she runs, she laughs at horse and rider. Right. Right, exactly. Um, but the idea right. of just like she's not very smart, but she flaps her wings joyfully. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she enjoys. Yeah. Yeah. That's really funny. I love that. Yeah. But I love the line she laughs at horse and rider. This is one of those. This is one of the, this is not what you're really talking about, but it's one of those examples where I get really bothered when people talk about animals as being stupid. Like, oh, that's, look how stupid that animal is. It just, you know, um, that stupid animal lays its eggs right on the ground. Right. Like, well, they, wild animals are intelligent as they need to be under, nor, under normal circumstances. Right. Like, well, you, you know, can actually stand <laughs> an ostrich egg yeah. without breaking. So yeah. It's probably yeah. fine. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, Whatever an animal lacks in one area, it usually makes up in another. Like the ostrich, like sure, it can't fly, but try to catch me. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah. Anyway. Great. Well, thank you, everybody. Thank you. Yep. Thank you.